Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, our teaching leader, Brett Tatko, will be discussing the call of Abram from Genesis chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 20. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, and join Brett as he shares truths from God's Word. Hey, good evening, folks. Welcome to BSF. It is another week. We're so glad that you're with us. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Genesis 11 and 12, the descendants of Shem, as well as the initial call of Abraham uh, by the Lord of the universe. Let me open us in prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together in a virtual fashion to study your word, to learn from each other, uh, and most most importantly, Father, to learn from your Holy Spirit. As we open your word tonight, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts through your spirit. Teach us, Lord, the things that you would have us learn from this passage, and may we uh, understand how we can apply this ancient text to our lives today. Amen. Well, I I hope that uh, everybody had a great week this week. I know as a nation, we've had an interesting week. After the polls closed on November 3rd, we entered into a watching and waiting time period. We had all voted and we began to wonder, how would this election be resolved? What's going to happen with the ballot counting in Georgia or Pennsylvania How will the decisions of voters, not only in those battleground states, but around the country, impact our own lives here in Missouri and in the Midwest? Uh, And what is life going to look like if one candidate or the other wins? Uh, We've been wondering, we've been watching, and it seems like we're beginning to understand what that looks like. But I think that that spirit of expectant wonder connects us with two groups of people that we're going to encounter as we read the the passage in Genesis this week. One is the hearers of uh, Moses' writings, the people of Israel, those who the book was written to. They had an expectation, an expectant wonder of not what was going to happen in their general election, but what was God going to do? How was God going to fulfill his promises to them to bring them into the promised land? And what would be some of the implications of this book that Moses was writing as they were listening and hearing from it? I think another group that was what was wondering expectantly what was going to happen were the people that are actually covered in the passage, Shem's descendants. They were trying to understand and grapple with what does it look like uh, to live in a world where, where the, there's a promise of an offspring crushing the head of a serpent. But, but how's that going to happen? What is going to happen with that offspring? Who's going to do it? What family is going to do it? And, and larger than that, what does it look like to be a successful follower of God in this world that seems to be filled with sin and sinful hearts? So we've, we've definitely had this, this great promise at, at Genesis 3.15 about the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And we've seen a lot of offspring that have filled the pages of Genesis to this point. We've seen Adam's offspring, 
and we had immediate problems out of the gate with Cain. And Adam's offspring had so many problems that God wiped the surface of the earth clean of nearly all of them. And so now we've been following Noah's offspring after the flood, and there were some immediate problems with his offspring. Immediately, Ham uh, has a, this, this situation that happens with Noah, and we've seen Noah's offspring go forward, and they've, they've begun to, to populate the earth, and they began to build this mighty city that wanted to reach the heavens. And again, there's been problem with Noah's offspring where God came down and confused the language of the people in the story of the Tower of Babel that we looked at last week. So, you know, we've seen so much failure. We've seen so much failure in our, in our book of Genesis so far. We've seen failure across the board, whether it's Adam, whether it's Eve, whether it's Cain, whether it's Lamech, whether it's the Nephilim, whether it's Ham, even some of the failings of Noah. Uh, we are wondering, what is it going to look like for some offspring of a woman to be successful? What does success look like in this world that God has created? What are the criteria that are going to define success? And and what will it look like for someone to successfully overcome uh, the serpent and crush his head? Well, I think the one of the questions that we're going to not get the complete answer to, but we're going to learn the some of the answers to tonight are success is found only by obeying God. Success is found only by obeying God. Let's go ahead and get started. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 10. And we're going to look, uh, there's, there's several different sections of the passage. We're not going to focus deeply on all of them, but there's really four main parts of the passage. It begins in Genesis 10. These are the generations of Shem. That's a key marker in the narration by the author for us to know that this is a significant break. There's another one of those markers again in uh, chapter 27, verse 11. These are the generations of Terah. And so again, there's that generational marker. So that's a break that happens there. So Genesis 10 through 26, uh, Genesis 27 through the end of chapter 11 is there's kind of two breaks there. And then we have two nows. Uh, those are in chapter 12, 12, one. Now the Lord said to Abram. So we have a break there where something is now happening with Abram. And then again, uh, in chapter 12, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So we're going to look at those four parts. We're really going to focus in a little bit more on Abraham's call and Abraham's time in Egypt, but we are going to definitely look at Shem's descendants and also Terah's descendants. So let's jump right in and take a look at that. Uh, chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. We know that Shem is the elder son of Japheth. We don't know if it's Noah's oldest son, but this is definitely one of Noah's sons, and we're following his generation. We're going to see a little bit of repeated material from Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, down from Shem to Peleg. We've already sort of heard about them in the table of nations. Peleg seems that he was alive during the Tower of Babel uh, dispersion. It says in chapter 10 that Peleg was there when the earth was divided. But then uh, Shem's lineage continues on verses 17, 18, and through the end of 26 with additional people that we're going to learn about. Shem's descendants all the way down to a man named Terah. Now we don't know if this genealogy is following the eldest sons. Uh, We don't even know if these were potentially God's faithful followers. But we do know that you know these these men were born to certain fathers, and then they had offspring. So we're following a father and son progression from Shem down to Terah. 
Now, the lifespans are getting a bit shorter. We're starting to see that happen a little bit. Shem lived for almost 500 years. And by the time we get down to to uh, to Terah, he's living for 207 years. Still long by our standards today, but definitely shorter than the 900-year lifespans we saw in Adam's descendants from Adam all the way down to Noah. One of the things that's different in this account, going from Shem to Terah, is that we're missing the refrain that we had when we went from Adam to Noah of, then he died. We don't see that happen. Uh, we're really seeing how long someone lived before they had their first child, and then, you know, really they had other sons and daughters and lived so many years. So the pattern is a little bit different. Um, but again, like that genealogy, we're covering roughly 10 generations. We're, we're ultimately going to end up looking at Abraham. Abraham appears to be the 10th generation from Shem. And again, as we went from Adam down to Noah, we were looking at 10 generations. And uh, we see similarly to Genesis 5, where there was an emphasis on Noah. We, we sort of are going father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son, and all of a sudden it's father to three sons. We saw that with Noah. Noah had three sons, Genesis 5.32, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in, 11, uh, in, in 11.26, we can see that Terah had three sons, and those sons are Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. As we go into 27, there's again, there's that other break. These are the generations of Terah. We're again told who Terah's children are, and we're given some extra detail about the family. First of all, we learn about the son named Haran. He had a son named Lot. And uh, even though Haran was a son of Terah, he seemed to have died young. Uh, he died in the land of Ur. He died in the presence of his father. We don't know why. We don't know how. Uh, but we know that he died uh, before his time, before at least old age would have ex- explainably ended his life. We also learn about Abraham marrying a woman named Sarai. It's not, I'm sorry, it's not Abraham, it's Abram at this point. His name is changed. If I slip up on that, I apologize. But Abram marries Sarai. Now, we don't learn about it here, but in Genesis 20, we're told that Sarai is, in fact, a daughter of Terah from a different woman. So Abraham, Abram, and Sarai are half-brother and sister. And we also see that Nahor marries a woman named Milcah. Uh, Milcah is identified as the daughter of, of, of Haran. It seems like he married his niece. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about Nahor's family as we get into Genesis 24. Uh, the patriarchal families, the, the Isaac and the, the Jacob and the Josephs, are going to have time where they spend back with Nahor and his family. So they're going to come back into the frame. But really what we're focusing on here, what, we, what we're learning here is that this larger family unit in chapter 30, or verse 31, Terah and Abram and Lot and Haran and the grandson and Sarai were on their way from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. Now, the question is, is what was the reason for this move? We know that Abraham right away in 12.1 is going to be Uh, called by God to go to a land that he would show him, but it seems like the broader family group was on their way there already, and so that's very interesting. Uh, What we do learn in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, he indicates that God, God called Abram before he lived in Haran, when he was in Mesopotamia, and so it seems like God's call came to Abram, and the larger family group was moving together to the city of Haran, but in that time they stopped, they settled in the city of Haran, and then we learned that we learned that Terah died at 205 
years of age. We come to now a very significant part of the passage in chapter 12, verse 1, where God is specifically calling Abram uh, to come forward. And so this is, a, this is a passage of scripture that we want to really remember. Uh, a big passage of scripture for us so far has been Genesis 3, where God promised about the seed of the woman. We also have in Genesis, uh, in, in Genesis, I'm, I don't have the reference, but God's promise to Noah, the covenant that God established with Noah after the flood, key section for us to remember these times when God is speaking to his people, making promises. And this is another one. This is really going to shape out much of Abraham's life and much of his son's life, this promise that God makes. And it's going to help us understand many of the events that unfold other places in the Bible, whether it's the uh, children of Israel and the Exodus. Uh, Many parts of scripture are going to harken back to this section. So we're going to look at it see what we can understand from it, and then draw a couple of applications from this call of Abraham. First of all, let me just read it for you. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, uh, the Lord in verse 1 is the covenantal name of God. It's the, it's the name Yahweh. And so this is the, the name that God refers to himself as uh, to, help him, to help the people of Israel understand who he is. The, the Israelites, Moses' audience, would have, would have been aware of this name. So this special name is, is the name that God uses to imply that he is the covenant-keeping God, and that is the way he is introduced in this section. There's a command given to Abram, namely the command is to go. Uh, leave behind all that is familiar, leave behind all of that which would potentially result in greatness in this world. Leave your home, leave your family, leave the life that you're familiar with. And Abraham is is called to go to a place that God would show him. The implication is, is that Abraham doesn't exactly know, Abram doesn't exactly know where he is going. He's never been there. He's never seen it. Uh, God is saying to him, I'm going to take you to a totally new place and surround you with new people in a totally different circumstance. Abraham is then given a promise of what God will do. Uh, First of all, God says he will make Abraham into a great nation. The implication is that he will have offspring. Also, there there is a blessing that God says is he will bless Abraham and he will make Abram's name great. And so this idea of greatness, how do we achieve greatness in in our passage of scripture? The folks of the Tower of Babel wanted to build a huge city, a massive tower to make a name for themselves. And God is saying to Abram, I will make your name great. We also see that there's a, a message of blessing. It's complicated. Abraham would be blessed and his name would become great. But there's also a part of the passage that says, I will bless those who bless you. And so the implication is, is that as people respond to Abram, uh, so will God respond to them. Abraham, Abram is becoming the conduit of God's blessing, not just to himself and to his family, but to a larger group of people around him. And ultimately, uh, all families are going to be blessed through Abram. Uh, there's an implication where uh, the, the passage reads, uh, I will bless those 
who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And so the implication is, is that those is more people than him. And so there's a larger number of people that are going to experience blessing through Abraham as opposed to dishonor. Uh, and then ultimately, the, all of the families, and we've seen the table of nations in Genesis 10, the families of earth will experience blessing because of Abraham. Now, if you think about people's experience with God up to this point in the book of Genesis, it's been a lot of judgment. There have been a few people that have have been blessed specifically by God. Noah experienced some blessing from God. But really, a lot of the, the world's experience with God to this point has been judgment, dispersion, confusion of languages. And so there's a shift that's happening now as we go into Abraham and Abraham's family of blessing. And we're going to look at Abraham's response in verses uh, 4 through 5 of chapter 12. You know, the interesting thing is that there's absolutely nothing, there's no physical evidence that Abraham can see that would even offer him any confidence of what God is going to deliver. Abraham's never seen the land. And the other things that God is offering, you know, there's even some evidence of the contrary. Abraham's 75 when God called him. He is much older than most of the folks in the line of Shem who have already had children. And so we were told before that Sarai was barren. And so even the promise of having offspring, the promise of nationhood, uh, is, is something that, that Abram's going to say, hey, you know, I'm, it's, I haven't had any kids yet. How am I going to have a great nation come from me? Uh, there was no picture of the land that, that, that God could point to and say, Abram, I'm taking you to this beautiful land by the sea. You'll love it. Uh, you know, there was nothing that Abraham could see with his eyes that would allow him to say, yes, Lord, uh, I know what you're going to give me and I, I want to do it. Uh, when we buy cars or houses or when we buy shirts or shoes, we as people love to see it. And Missourians were in the show me state. Show me what it looks like. Let me see it with my own eyes. Let me touch it. Let me interact with it. Uh, Abraham has to take God at his word. He has to uh, believe what God said and then obey. And that's exactly what Abram does. Abram went as the Lord told him. Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. If we look forward in the Bible in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Hebrews 11 explains to us what it was that was driving Abram forward. Uh, he is, Abram is referred to as a man of faith. Uh, in the beginning of Hebrews 11, the definition of faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Abraham was called to have belief and action in what God had told him even though his, his seen eyes could have no evidence that would say, yes, I'm, I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be a great nation. But we know that Abraham responds by faith. He follows God's directions, and his entire family, all of his possessions, they, they take the long journey, and they end up in the land of Canaan. We, we are told that Lot, Abraham's nephew, goes with them, uh, and Abraham begins to walk through the land of Canaan, uh, several cities are mentioned, uh, the city of Shechem, the Oak of Morah, and we're reminded that this land uh, that Abraham is called to is inhabited by people. There are people already there, namely the Canaanites, and we've, we've already had a, a precursor to know that these Canaanites are sons of Ham and are ultimately underneath a curse from Noah. And so we'll, we'll learn more about that as we go on. But really, uh, Abraham was looking forward to something 
that that was not going to be established by human hands. So to see something, to see a picture of it, to see a postcard of the land of Canaan is not what Abraham was was looking forward to. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abram was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. At some level, Abram understood that if he was going to be successful, it meant aligning himself and trusting God and not trying to establish his own success like the people who built the Tower of Babel did. After Abraham is in the land, in verses 6 and 7, chapter 12, we can see that the Lord appeared to Abram. So before the Lord spoke to Abram, uh, and now the Lord is appearing to him, uh, and the Lord is saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram builds an altar to the Lord. Uh, He moved around in the country, and we see that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 8. So this altar that Abram built commemorated God's appearance, and it also was a place where Abram and his family would be able to worship the God who had called them to this new land. The principle for this first section, the call of Abraham, is that faith, uh, faith in God is the definitive marker of God's people. Faith in God is the definitive marker of God's people. Perhaps you've been to an amusement park, maybe not this summer, but at some point, maybe you've been to an amusement park where they give you a wristband. Uh, you know, they kind of wrap it on you. It's Maybe it's a certain color. So the blue wristband might mean that you can get into the water slides, but the red wristband means that you can do water slides and wave pool. And so, you know, we're sort of are familiar with this idea that, you know, that this thing that we get sort of categorizes us, it identifies us as being a guest of the park, and it gives us access to certain parts of the facility based upon, you know, red or blue or however they do it. Uh, but in the, same, in the same way, the thing that is going to identify us as God's people is going to be faith. When, when we see faithful action, we can be confident that God is at work, that God's people are being obedient and are following God. When you look around and you see people with faith, you can say, they're one of God's. They belong to God. And the other thing is that when you, you, know, when you go to the amusement park, you don't bring your own wristband. It isn't like you're trying to figure out like, well, what are they doing at Six Flags today? Is it red or blue? You don't bring your own wristband with you to the park. When you go to the park, they give it to you. They give you the wristband. They put it on your wrist, and then that identifies you as someone who can be in the park for that day or have access to that rides. We, we know that as, we, as we've looked at the, the, the course of human history over the course of 20 generations in the book of Genesis, faith is not something that we're seeing happening very often. It is not the natural inclination in in, in the people that we've learned about so far in, in the history of the world. God's declaration is that every inclination of humanity is always evil all the time. And so in order for faith to be working in God's people, it is something that God needs to push into us. It is something that God needs to provide. It's like the wristband. We don't bring it. We don't bring our faith to the table and God's like, great, I see you got your wristband, you're ready to go. Ephesians 2.6 reminds us that faith and salvation are the gift of God. It is something that God gives to his people. And God did something in Abraham's heart, not in his physical heart, 
But in his spiritual heart, God did something to Abraham to change it from being always evil all the time to be able to respond to God's promises, to God's word, not with rebellion and disbelief and disobedience, but with faith. And so faith is going to be the marker, friends, that will help us see God's people, not only in the pages of scripture, but also in the world that we go through today. Well, one of the questions for you and I to think about as we think of Abraham and Abraham's call, you know, maybe you're trying to bring your own wristband. Uh, you're, you want to bring something to the table. You want to bring what, you, what you've created, what you've fashioned, what's inside of you. And so part of what you're doing is you're looking around at the people around you in your church and your community, and you're trying to imitate what they're doing. Well, these people are praying, or these people are reading their Bible. These people are uh, fasting, whatever it is. And, and you're going to fake it till you make it. And you're trying to bring something within yourself. You're trying to slip your own wristband on and say, I belong here. I belong here. Uh, we, we've seen the fruit of human efforts, friends, in the book of Genesis. We've seen it with Cain. We've seen it with, uh, we've seen it with the people who built the Tower of Babel. Friends, human effort will always fall short. We need to turn to God and say, Lord, I need a wristband. Because I am not going to be able to produce the faith on my own. Help me have it. Help me have it. One of the things we can tend to do with wristbands, I've done this at amusement parks, is you realize that the green band is like the all-access band, right? It gets you everywhere that you want to go. And so as we're going through our lives, we start to look around and we begin to realize like other people have different things that God has given them. Uh, God has done something different for my neighbor. God has done something different for my spouse. He's done something different for my friend. And we, we want that for ourselves. We, we have jealousy and envy that can creep into our hearts because we look around and we see the way that God is working in other people's lives and we say, I want that for my own. I want what God has done for somebody else. But friends, also, one of the things we can, we can celebrate is that as we look in our story, we look at our own life, we look at our own walk, we can see ways that God has provided faith to us, that God has allowed us to act, it, to act faithfully even though it's not our natural inclination. What stories can you tell of God's faithfulness in your life? Can you tell it to your group? Can you tell it to your friends? Because seeing God's people act faithfully is so encouraging. When we read about Abraham's good choices, his immediate obedience, friends, we are encouraged. It is exciting to see God working in the hearts of his people. Now, unfortunately, as we move into this next section of, of, uh, of Scripture, chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, we're going to see that Abraham is not perfect. Uh, Abram still has some flaws in his character, and we're going to see him be largely motivated by fear, acting out of fear and not faith. So let's take a look. Uh, there was a famine in the land. Abram decided to go down to Egypt to sojourn there. Uh, the Nile River was in Egypt. It was a source of regular water, even when the rainfall and some of the seasonal streams in the land of Canaan were dry. And so Abraham is sort of thinking humanly. He is saying there's, there's no water here, but there's water in Egypt. We don't know if this was a bad decision. It could have been. It may have been a, uh, a fearful decision of Abraham to leave the land, but regardless, he does it. What was definitely a bad decision was the plot that Abram and Sarai came up with as they were getting ready to cross into Egypt. They agreed to lie about their relationship. It was a half-truth. Abram and Sarai were half-siblings, but they were married. 
Uh, Sarai must have been very beautiful. Abraham was afraid for his life, despite the fact that God had said, I am going to make you into a nation. You will be a blessing. Even though God had given these strong promises to Abram sometime before, Abraham is faltering, he is fearful, and his fear is motivating him. He is saying, my life will be spared for your sake. He was afraid, he thought his life was in danger, and so they hatched this plot. Uh, Abram wasn't wrong, Sarai was beautiful, she was noticed, she was brought into Pharaoh's household. Abram was given gifts as the brother, and uh, somehow it seems like, you know, we're wondering what's going to happen now. Sarai has basically been taken as another man's wife. How is God going to fulfill his promise of making Abram into a great nation? Well, God has things under control. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with, with plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Somehow, Pharaoh figures it out. We don't know how. We, we aren't told how. Pharaoh figured out what was going on. He understood that this, this woman he had brought into his home belonged to another man. She was returned to Abram, uh, and then they were driven out of the land of, of Egypt. Uh, again, remember the audience that this was written to, the people of, of Israel in the desert with Moses. This notion, this would have evoked some of their own experience about God delivering plagues on the Egyptians and then ultimately God's people being driven out of Egypt. So it would have have evoked the Exodus, but that same thing happens to Abram and Sarai in this passage. They go to Egypt, uh, they're, they're blessed with wealth when they're there, but they're ultimately kicked out of the land. The good news for both Abram and Sarai is that God was in control. God protected both of them, uh, he did not allow Sarah to become Pharaoh's wife. He did not allow Abram to die. Uh, God protected uh, these two people. The principle for this section is that God's plan will not be undone by human failings. God's plan will not be undone by human failings. I, I really think Abram failed in his mission here. He, if we think about what a faithful response would have been by Abram as they crossed that border, hey, Sarai, let's pray. Let's pray that God would protect us. That's not what Abram did. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's good news for us because we are going to fail. We are going to fail as followers of, of Christ. We are going to fail. A few weeks ago, the, uh, the Atlanta Falcons football, football team lost to the Detroit Lions by one point because the Falcons running back scored a touchdown rather than letting the, the clock you know, count down further to get closer to zero. The, the Falcons were behind. Their running back scored a touchdown. You would think it would be cause for celebration, but they, he left too much time on the clock. And the reason that his entire football team lost was undone by one stupid decision by one player. And the good news for us is that God is not going to let his plan be thwarted when you or me or Abram make bad choices. Uh, we saw some of Abram's questionable choices here. You know, maybe going to Egypt, maybe, definitely lying. Uh, but the reality is, is that God was going to intervene because his plan was to make Abram and Sarai into a great nation. I think one of the mistakes that you and I can make as followers of God is that we want to take full responsibility when we might when we perceive that we do something wrong because of something that I did or because of something that I did not do. That person will never learn about Jesus. 
because of what I, because of a sin in my life, because of something that I've done in my past, I will never be able to do something. Friends, the reality is, is that God's plan is not going to be thwarted by our mistakes, by the things that we do wrong. Uh, we, it is not going to mess up God's plan. His plan is going to go forward. And if needed, God will intervene the way that he did in the account here to protect his future nation. Uh, you know, the, the reality in this section is that if, if Sarah ends up in the house of Pharaoh, we're going to have to cancel Christmas because there'll be no Jesus. There'll be no, there'll be no offspring to crush the head of the woman. And so God intervenes. God intervenes to protect his future offspring in this story. And, and there might be times in our own lives when, when God intervenes. He may not. He may not always make himself known in the powerful way that he did in, in Abram and Sarah's experience, but God is not going to let his plan be thwarted by our poor decision-making paradigms. One of the things that we saw Abram do in this passage is he was motivated by fear. Uh, he was motivated by the fear of his life. He was afraid for his life. And, you know, sometimes we do that as well. Uh, sometimes fear overtakes our hearts and we make decisions that are, that are, that are uh, out, of, out of whack, out of bounds. And can you think of times when you have been motivated by fear and not faith? And I guess to flip it on its head, what's been a time when you've allowed faith to motivate you and you've overcome fear because of a faithful response. So our, our nation, again, we've been, we started off at the beginning of our section talking about the, the election, the election season. You know, our, our nation now that, you know, more votes have been counted, it looks like we know what's going to be happening with the presidential election, but, you know, we're looking expectantly now at what are these next group of political leaders going to accomplish? What are they going to get done? What are these people that we've elected going to, going to fulfill and complete as they carry out their mandate to govern? What are they going to do? We're looking expectantly at, at the leadership of our country to say, what are they going to do now? And, and friends, uh, political leaders are, are men and women who absolutely will disappoint us. There are going to be decisions that our political leaders make that look a little bit like Abram going into the land of Egypt. We're going to look at those decisions and be like, what were you thinking? Where did that come from? My encouragement for you, my encouragement to me, is that we keep watching expectantly at what God is going to do. God has made great promises, not only in Genesis 3.15, not only to Noah, not only to Abram, but also to, to by extension, to us about what is coming. And we need to keep looking expectantly at God and what he's doing. He will not disappoint us. He, he will not fail to deliver on a promise that he has made in Scripture uh, because, friends, God is a God who keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. So let's you and I keep watching him. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a promise keeper. Thank you, Lord, that everything that you have said that you will do, you've already done it or you will do it. Lord, help us to continue to look at those promises in faith. And Lord, when we fail because of fear, uh, because of loss of focus, whatever it is, Lord, uh, remind us that we can experience true forgiveness, true restoration at, at Abram's greater son, Jesus. Thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the way that you care for your people. Pray all this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. 
Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. Join us on Zoom next Monday at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 13 and 14. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.